Good morning, church. Yep, Papa's up here now. I know, you're all going to call me Papa. Only a few get to call me that one. It is good to see you and good to be together to look at God's Word this morning. We'll be looking at James 5 in a moment. You know, there was this kindergarten teacher in Texas who was helping a five-year-old put on his cowboy boots. And after trying to do it himself, he asked the teacher for help, and she could see why. Even with her pulling and him pushing, the little boot still didn't want to go on. And by the time they got the second boot on, she had already worked up a sweat. She almost cried when the little boy said, Teacher, they're on the wrong feet. She looked, and sure enough, they were. It wasn't any easier pulling the boots off than it was putting them on. She managed to keep her cool as together they worked to get the boots back on, this time on the right feet. The five-year-old then announced, these aren't my boots. The teacher bit her tongue, even though she felt like saying, why didn't you say so? Once again, she struggled to help him pull the ill-fitting boots off his little feet. And no sooner had they gotten the boots off when he said, they're my brother's boots. My mom made me wear them today. <laughs> Now, she didn't know if she should laugh or cry, but she mustered up what grace and courage she had left to wrestle the boots on his feet again. Helping him to his coat, she asked, now, where are your mittens? He said, oh, I stuffed them in the toes of my boots. <laughs> now, there are situations every single day, and all you patients or all you parents or teachers out here get that one. But there's situations every day that try our patience. What kind of scenarios put your patience to the test? And patience really isn't a virtue of our society, is it? I'm sure you've heard the American prayer. It goes like this, Lord, give me patience, and I want it right now. Or as someone else put it, if I could store any character quality in a cookie jar, I'd store patience, chocolate chip patience cookies, and I'd eat them all in one sitting. See, it doesn't help matters, really, that we live in a day where we expect things quicker and quicker. Let's face it, we aren't very good at waiting. I mean, do you, do you wait well? Do you like to wait? How long are you willing to wait? Perhaps I've shared some of these statistics with you before, but the average person, the average person over a lifetime will spend more than three years of their lives waiting for something to happen. Waiting for your turn at the intersection, waiting for your food at the restaurant, waiting for something to load on your computer, waiting at your microwave, or waiting for the sermon to get over. We wait for someone to return a call, a text, or an email. We wait for the shower temperature to be right before we step in. We wait for our coffee to brew, and we now wait for the Pats to win their next Super Bowl. But more significant than that, though, and there are things, is waiting perhaps for the right person to marry, or waiting for our child to come back to the Lord or waiting for those test results, or waiting to finally get pregnant. We wait for someone to say sorry. We wait for someone to move toward us in re reconciliation. We wait for, for another job to open up. We wait for our spouse to change. We wait. 
Lewis Smedes put it this way. He said, waiting is our destiny as creatures who cannot by themselves bring about what they hope for. We wait in the darkness for flame we cannot light. We wait in fear for a happy ending that we cannot write. We wait for a not yet that feels like a not ever. Let's face it, waiting is one of the hardest parts of the Christian life. Waiting is one of the hardest parts of the Christian life. And that introduces us to our passage that we're looking at this morning in the book of James. And so I invite you to, to turn with me to James chapter 5. I hope you have your Bibles with you or some source in which to look at this passage as we look at it together. James chapter 5, we continue in our study on faith and action. And we're going to be looking at uh, verses 1 through 12 uh, this morning, bit off a little more than I can chew here, and so we won't be able to get into great detail with all of the 12 verses, but you'll definitely get the idea behind all of this here. And I want to begin by looking at verse 7. It sets everything up for this morning. Chapter 5, verse 7, James says, Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. So why the call to patience? Why a reference to the Lord's coming? All right, first principle this morning is we must wait for God's justice to be served. We must wait for God's justice to be served. Principle number one. And when James here says, be patient then, or in some translations, it's be patient therefore, it points us back to what just came before it. Verses 1 through 6. And so go back with me and look at verse 1 of James chapter 5. James chapter 5 verse 1. Now listen you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. It appears for the very first time in this letter. That James is not addressing believers. But unbelievers. And he's speaking candidly of the misery that will come to those who are using their wealth and power to take advantage of other people. That's what it's getting at. Why do I say that? Well, look down with me at verse 4. He says to these same people here, look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen, kind of you took advantage of, who mowed your fields, they're crying out against you. Verse 6. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. Now, remember the background to the timing of this letter. The believers James is writing to have been scattered among the nations. And why were they scattered? Because of persecution. What persecution? Well, due to the fact that they were Jews, they were being mistreated. And then add to that, they were Christians. It was a double whammy. For being Jewish and being Christians, and they were persecuted. And what I think James is doing here in these six verses and addressing the unbelieving rich who are oppressing the people of God is that James was really offering words of encouragement to his brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what I think verses 1 through 6 are all about. I mean, is, is there anything more difficult to wait on God than when we see injustices in the world? God, do something about it now. 
Or on a personal level, how difficult is it when you've been wronged or mistreated? I mean, don't you just fight everything within you to take matters into your own hands? Kind of help God out a little bit? How can I do right when I have been done wrong? How can I do right when I have been done wrong? James says, wait on the Lord. For a day is coming when his justice will prevail. So have you been mistreated? Have you been taken advantage of? Don't you just want to retaliate, do a little payback, be encouraged, not in secretly delighting in that they'll get what they deserve, but that God will make all things right. Be comforted in the fact that God knows. God knows. Notice the words in the middle of verse 4. Middle of verse 4. These just jumped out at me. Verse 4. The cries of the harvesters, meaning the ones who have been taken advantage of and mistreated, their cries have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Your cries have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Your cries over the injustices in the world have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Your cries over being ripped off by that person have reached the ears of the Almighty. Your cries of abuse have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Your cries for the unborn whose lives are taken from them have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Now that isn't to say that there's no place for speaking up for the oppressed or the disadvantaged or the silent sufferers. Just don't lose sight of this. God will make it all right. Be patient then. Wait for the coming of the Lord. And it seems as though the people James is writing to were longing for the coming of the Lord. I kind of see that here. Likely in large part because they were hurting. Because when life is hard, there's a greater longing, isn't there, for Jesus' second coming? Isn't that true? The harder it is here, the more we ache for there. It isn't often. I've heard people say, you know, life's so good here. Things are going so well. I wish Jesus would return right now. Usually not said. Yeah, when everything's upside down as we see it today and, and evil seems to be winning and the injustices are so downright maddening, we cry out, how long, O Lord, how long? James says, wait, be patient then. How long? Until the coming of the Lord. That's a long time. Wait for it. Whatever you're going through, whatever the trial in your life right now, whatever the hurt of mistreatment, whatever the many ways those in power or those with money victimize others for their selfish gain, wait on God. Because you see, any person or nation who reaps wealth at the expense of the poor face the judgment of God. That's what it says. I'm not making it up. There will be wailing and weeping for anyone who hoarded their riches, yet were not rich toward God. See, not everything is settled right when we want them to be. 
likely I've told you the story of a farmer in a Midwestern state. It was a small uh, rural community. But this, this farmer had this strong disdain for religious things and for religious people. He'd mock the Christians in his community. Matter of fact, as, they, as he would plow his field on Sunday morning, kind of in their face, he would shake his fist at the church folks who passed by on their way to worship. October came, and he had his first crop, the best in the entire county. And when the harvest was complete, he sent word to the local paper, which belittled the Christians for their faith in God. Matter of fact, he said this, faith in God must not mean much if someone like me can prosper. The response of the Christian community was quiet and polite. Next edition of the town paper, small ad appeared. It read simply, God doesn't always settle his accounts in October. (laughs) God doesn't always settle his accounts in October. Church, be patient. Wait on God. Just because there isn't judgment today doesn't mean there won't be judgment tomorrow. Or at least someday when Jesus returns. Principle number two, we must wait on God for the guaranteed harvest to come. Principle number two, we must wait on God for the guaranteed harvest to come. Now, after James here commands us to be patient, he gives an example of the farmer. See it here, middle of verse seven. He says, see how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable or precious crop, and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains, what he's saying there is in James's day in Palestine, the early rains referred to as autumn and the, and the, and the late rains, uh, which in October, November were the early rains, and then the late rains, spring, as you first do it here, would come April and May. And they counted on those rains. In between wasn't as important as much as the autumn and spring. And matter of fact, in Scripture, and you can explore this for yourself here, but in Scripture, you often see the rains as a sign of God's faithfulness. It's interesting. But there's no better example, really, of patience than a farmer. I had the, the privilege of being around a couple of produce farmers when I was in Maine. And these guys, they were extremely hard workers. I mean, they got up at a sick time in the morning, and at times they worked late into the night. And so the picture of the farmer is not one who just kind of sits idly by waiting on God. No, there's work to do while they wait for those, that rain. He must work the ground. He must prepare the soil and cultivate it, plant seeds, tend to it. All that's within his control. But for the farmer, the waiting was the harder work because there was so much out of his control. He could fight against it. He could stay awake at night worrying about it. He could insist that the fruit comes sooner, or he could embrace the process. You know what? That's the same process God takes us through. The call is to be patient. And patience here means to endure, not lose heart, show active restraint. It's to wait for God to work, to trust him that there will be a harvest. And that's why this illustration is so effective. Because as we expectantly wait for the return of the Lord, the example of the farmer teaches us that we must give ourselves to that which is in our control, do all that we can while we wait. But then what? What must the farmer do? What must we do? Wait patiently. Because there are so many things out of our control. And it can be frustrating at times. 
But God promises a harvest if we do not give up. It tells us Galatians 6 verse 9. So when you find yourself under the pressure of trials, when life doesn't make sense, when things just don't add up, when everything inside of you wants to quit, remember the harvest is coming. It's guaranteed. And there's so many things out of our control. The car that stalls at the intersection, the mess up of our reservations, the unfairness at work, the hurtful comments that seem so random and, and injustice because of biases and prejudices or, or being overlooked for that promotion or the death of a loved one, uh, out of our control. A child who walks away from the faith, uh, losing that job, a change in the meeting that takes me from my kid's game, trying circumstances that seem to pile up on top of each other. So much of life seems out of our control, does it not? And what happens when that happens in our life? What shows up, patience or impatience? Now, I'll be honest, I had to laugh when I read these first words in verse 7 and say, you want me to preach on patience? Oh boy, I think there's someone else more qualified. Love the story of the man whose car stalled at an intersection, and no matter what he did, he couldn't get his car started. There's always that person, the guy in the pickup truck behind him, who was just laying on his horn. Well, after listening to this for a while, the driver of the stalled car, he, he walked, got out of his car, he walked back to the truck, the, the vehicle behind him, and he said, you know, I'm sorry, but I can't get my car started. But I tell you what, if you'll go to my car and get in it and give it a try, I'll stay here in your truck and just keep blowing the horn. I <laughs> think that's pretty good. I mean, you can honk your horn all you want. It's not going to change the circumstances. Is that how we handle trials? We, we, we just kind of fume in anger and we just lean on our horn. There's a better way. Be patient until the Lord's coming. Why? Because we know there's something better. We know all things will be made right to the glory of God. We know that what is to come when we pass from this life to our eternal home is far better even than the best thing in this life. See, biblical patience is longing for the coming of the Lord and to live in great anticipation of that next big event. It's knowing that God is good for all of his promises. Principle number three. What God does in us while we wait is as important as what it is we're waiting for. Right? What God does in us while we wait is as important as what it is we're waiting for. And I borrow that from Ben Patterson, really. He said it this way. At least as important as the things we wait for is the work God wants to do in us as we wait. James says in verse 8, follow along, you too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. He's saying, well, there's so much out of our control, James here is going to speak to what is in our control. He says, we show our patience by standing firm. And that phrase, standing firm or established in some translations, has this sense of resoluteness to it. It's, it's the idea of, of, of being resolute, resolved, committed to stay the course no matter how severe the trial. That's the work God's doing in us. He goes on in verse 8 to speak of the motivation for standing firm because the Lord's coming is near. 
You see, because God is coming soon, Davis doesn't tell us, go sell all that you have, go sit on your rooftops and wait for the Lord to return. Some have done that. It makes no sense. He says, well, while we wait, stay grounded, stand firm, strengthen your resolve to stay the course because you know the Lord is coming. But that isn't, that isn't how we always handle stress and pressure. No, what do we do? We vent our frustration and we project that frustration of all that's going on around us in the wrong direction. And that's why I believe he says this in verse 9. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Why is it that our disappointment, what's going on in the world, causes us to grumble against the church? Why is it that when a trial comes against the people of God from outside, that there can be this turning against each other from within? He's speaking against that. But it's this attitude we have of, I can't get to them, so I'll get to you instead. I can't believe the things I grumble about at home that so often have very little to do what happens there. See, when trials come, James says, don't start taking it out on each other. Don't stop blaming the people around you for what you're going through. Don't lash out on your brothers and sisters in Christ. After all, we're family. We're family. That's again. And if that fact... That where family isn't motivation enough for how we should treat each other, James adds, the judge is standing at the door. Here comes the judge. <laughs> All you young people have no idea what that re- is a reference to. None. James reminds us of the reality that we will have to give an account to God, our judge, as to how we treated others within the church family. We cannot control God's timing of when he's going to make wrongs right, which may not be until he returns. We cannot control any of that or many other things. What can we control? (laughs) Whether we're going to grumble or not. How we're going to handle that situation. There was a young father in a supermarket, and he was pushing a shopping cart with his little son, who was strapped in the front. And the little boy was fussing and irritable and crying. I'm sure none of you could relate to this. I mean, it was an ugly scene. The father seemed, though, to be very calm. As he continued down each aisle, he he murmured gently, Easy now, Donald. Keep calm, Donald. Steady, boy. It's all right, Donald. The mother who was passing by was greatly impressed by this young father's calm attitude, and she said, You certainly know how to talk to an upset child quietly and gently. And then bending down to the little boy, she said, what seems to be the trouble, Donald? Oh, no, said the father. He's Henry. I'm Donald. (laughs) He's talking himself through it. We need to do that. Talk ourselves through it. I'm going to say, come, Brian. This is not that big a deal. Let it go. Relax. See, patience is not only the ability to wait, but how you act while you're waiting. It's all about the work God's doing in us while we wait. You've heard me quote this before. It's probably one of my favorite quotes. 
Life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to it. 10% what happens to you is life. 90% is how you react to it. We can control our response. All right, better get on to principle four. That's way too convicting there. Principle number four, blessings come to those who endure great things. Blessings come to those who endure great things. Now, James here is going to provide us with two examples of that truth, of those who endured great things and were blessed. First, we see the patience of the prophets. Look at verse 10. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. What do we know about prophets? Well, prophets were the ones who didn't just only tell uh, the future, but they also, on the very front line, speaking the truth of God. Well, what does that have to do with patience and steadfast endurance? Well, they spoke God's truth, but it wasn't always received well by the hearers. Take, for example, and I give many, but take, for example, the prophet Jeremiah. He spoke what God told him to speak. He was doing the right thing. He was sticking his neck out for God and telling the people what they needed to hear. What happened? Did they go, thank you, Jeremiah, for giving us this information here. We will change our ways. That was awesome. Thank you. No, they didn't do that. They rejected what he had to say. Matter of fact, if you know the story, it got so bad for Jeremiah, he was thrown into a cistern. A well with no water in it, it just mud. And he says, he sank down into the mud. That's what you get for serving the Lord? <laughs> and then Micaiah, like you talk about Micaiah the prophet, he was slapped in the face for speaking the very words of God. I can report that's never happened to me. I'm thankful for that. Don't try it out this morning. But the prophets serve as an example of patience in that they suffered, not because they did anything wrong, but because they were doing what was right. They did right when they had been wronged. And the blessing came, not because they did great things, but because they endured great things. Patience of prophets. Now, James here, he now gives us the journey of Job. Verse 11. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. That's why we say, oh, the patience. You must have the patience of Job. No one's really said it to me, but you recall in the story of Job, right? You know the story? There's a conversation going between God and Satan about this man of God, remember? And when God speaks of Job's righteous character, Satan replies in essence that Job serves God, and he's righteous only because he has everything going for him. He had a beautiful family. He had lots of money. I mean, he was very wealthy. And Satan's angle is this. If you take away those gifts, Job will curse you to your face. Satan's argument really was that no one serves God for who he is, but for only for what they can get. In some cases, Satan is spot on with that. Not the case with Job. Under God's sovereignty, with four flattening blows, Job lost ten children. He lost his entire fortune. And with a fifth blow, uh, he was covered with boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. 
Even Job's wife said to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Now that's the kind of wife you want. (laughs) Job's friends weren't much better. I mean, his friends were doing okay until they opened their mouths. They had all figured out, concluding that Job was suffering because of some terrible sin in his life. Those are the kind of the friends you want. Now, how did Job fare in all of this? Job falls to the ground in worship of God, and he says, Naked I come from my mother's womb. Naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And then he says, then it says, In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Now, I'll be honest. When I read through the book of Job, I see Job doing a lot of complaining. I see passionate outbursts. I see protests to God. He seems pretty ticked off at times. And I go, patience of Job? Well, the word James uses here for patience is a different word than he used back in 7 and 8 and even verse 10. The word here is perseverance. NIV hits it. The word here is perseverance which carries the idea of dogged endurance over the long haul. Because what don't we see Job do? Renounce God. He never abandoned his faith. He remained loyal to God uh, to the end. He refused to surrender his integrity. He never stopped believing in God. I mean, God still had to straighten him out a little bit. But in the end, God, uh, Job saw the greatness of God. And we eventually see God who is full of compassion and mercy, but it takes 42 chapters to get there. It's waiting. For 42 chapters, Job could wonder, when is this ever going to end? Why is this happening? You see, if you notice, God is not in a hurry. But in the end, as we know the story, God blessed Job. In Job's case, he blessed him materially, not always the case, because the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. I don't have a lot of time to spend on this, but but that word there, full of compassion and mercy, Job, uh, James made this word up. You can't find it in any other biblical literature. You can't find it even in words of his time, of his day. No, he kind of came up with this unique word, full of compassion and mercy. And what he's saying by this is that God is extreme when it comes to compassion and mercy. He's extreme. Therefore, we can wait for it. We can be patient. We can trust him to come through. And then James ends this section with these words, verse 12. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, and you will be condemned. And I go, what in the world does this have to do with what James has been talking about? Or going to talk about in verse 13. (laughs) I mean, how does this fit in? James have this senior moment? James kind of goes sideways here? Okay, one thing's for certain. What we have here is exactly what God wanted us to have in his written word. So even if we can't seem to find James' flow of thought, God wasn't just rambling. We're supposed to get something out of this. Now, unless I miss my guess, I think we have verse 12 in this section because James may still have Job on his mind as it speaks of Job not sinning in what he said. Job's lips matched his life. He never surrendered his integrity. So, when in times of pressure, 
At times we, we might grow impatient with the circumstances of life. Let your life speak for itself. You don't need to give long explanations. You don't need to give all this pious spiritualizing. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Hang on to your integrity. And whether it's grumbling against others, we're defending ourselves with many words and idle promises we make to God when we're under pressure. It's lashing out to God for taking so long or for doing nothing. Waiting is one of the hardest parts of the Christian life. And remember, while, God, while we're waiting, God is doing something in us. See, getting ready for the coming of the Lord is a process, not just something we can pull together in a few minutes. Okay, Americans, do you hear that? Let me say it again. Here's the bottom line. We're terrible at waiting. We don't like process. Getting ready for the coming of the Lord is a process, not just something we pull together in a few minutes. Doug Mendenhall told this parable probably about five years ago now, maybe, maybe further back than that. Here's the parable. He said, Jesus called the other day to say he was passing through and he wondered if he could spend a day or two with us. I must have gotten that deer in the headlights look because my wife said, what is it? What's wrong? Who's on the phone? So I covered the receiver and I told her, Jesus was going to arrive in eight minutes. She ran out of the room, started giving guidance to the kids in that effective way that marine drill instructors give guidance to recruits. He says, my mind was already racing with what needed to be done in the next eight, no, seven minutes, so Jesus wouldn't think we are reprobate loser slobs. I turned off the TV in the den, he says, which is blaring some weird, scary movie I'd been watching. But I could still hear screams from our bedroom, so I turned off the reality show it was tuned to. Oh, I turned off the kids' set in their room, because I didn't want to have to explain John and Kate plus eight to Jesus either, uh, six minutes from now. My wife had already thinned out the magazines that had been accumulating on the coffee table. She put Christianity Today on top for a good impression. Five minutes to go. I looked out the front window, and and the yard actually looked good and kind of great, really, thanks to my long, hard work. So I just let that go. What could I improve on anyway in four minutes? I did notice the mail had come, so I ran out to get it. Mostly, it was Netflix envelopes and a bunch of catalogs tied into recent purchases. So I stuffed it back in the mailbox. Jesus didn't need to get the wrong idea three minutes from now about how much online shopping we do. I ran back in. I picked up a bunch of shoes left by the door. I tried to stuff them in the front closet. But it was overflowing with heavy coats, work coats, snow coats, pretty coats, raincoats, and extra coats. We live in the South, for crying out loud. Why do we buy so many coats? (laughs) I squeezed all the shoes in with two minutes to go. I plumped up sofa pillows. My wife tossed dishes into the sink. I scolded the kids. She shooed the dog. And with one minute left, I realized something very important. Getting ready for a visit from Jesus is not an eight-minute job. Then the doorbell rang. Getting ready for Jesus is not an eight-minute job. It's a lifestyle. It is a process. 
and what God is doing in us while we wait, because it requires waiting. And what God is doing in us while we wait is at least as important as what we're waiting for. We embrace the process. Let's pray. Father, may we take to heart what's here. May you just help us as you always do. Make the personal applications to our lives. If we're teachable, if we want to hear it from you, we'll hear it. Maybe it's already been clear. We don't even need to ask the question any longer. Maybe it's, what I, this is what I need to do. But one thing's for sure, in all of this process, while we wait, as frustrating as that is, you hold us in your hands all the way through the entire process. You're going to be faithful. And we can sing as we're going to do as we close here of the goodness of God. Help us to remember that as we think about what application we need to make to our lives. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.